The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Well, we built the sauna so that you can go directly to the pool without uh, walking through the house. Oh, that's great. But more importantly, we have to win this election. There are too many people without jobs and too many families living in shelters. Oh my gosh, this house is beautiful. Mm, 6,200 square feet, not including the, uh, the pool house. Jerry and I just love the concept of a news anchor running, slow down on the salmon. I want you to meet someone with a lot of money, whose heart's in the right place. Harriet! Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 15, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. <laughs> no, no, not right wing. <laughs> Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and hello, everyone. Looks like I've been away for too long. Hey, Robert, I almost forgot how that opening went. That's okay. We recovered well. <laughs> well, we, I missed you all on the show last week as I couldn't be here due to the sudden and somewhat unexpected election call in Ontario. But I'm pleased to say that today we're joined in studio by a very familiar face to us here, and that's uh, our guest in studio, Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party. Morning, Paul. Morning, fellas. Um, you know, Paul, I know you're here in town today as party leader and as candidate here locally for London Fanshawe. In that regard, uh, you join the local Freedom Party slate of, uh, yes, Salim Mansour in London North Centre, Claire Maloney in Elgin Middlesex, London, and Al Gretzky in my own home riding of London West. Go Al. Yeah. So, Paul, I know that uh, you've got uh, the rounds to do today. We're not the only show you'll be on. And you'll be doing uh, the de- the debates, I guess, tomorrow on Rogers. Is that is that correct? Locally? Yeah, that's that's right. So the uh, Rogers debates are taped tomorrow, and then they'll start airing immediately. I think there's going to be about six airings of mm-hmm. uh, each riding. Well, so I thought so. You know, for today's show, I thought we'd speak be speaking to you more as a leader of the Freedom Party on the broader and fundamental real issues that truly affect most voters right across the province, and. Um, Certainly looks like Freedom Party will have enough candidates to elect a majority government, potentially again. That's right. And uh, also, a bit later on, I know that as an employment lawyer, you have a real personal first-hand knowledge of what the Hudak 100,000 jobs cut plan might have on individuals and families uh, directly affected. And that's something else I'd like to explore with you after we start on, I guess, one of the bigger issues facing Ontarians now. And... um, at least now, not after Hudak might get elected, and that is with the real shocker, skyrocketing electricity rates and a shocking suggestion that perhaps we should pull the plug on Ontario's wind turbine schemes, which was actually suggested in the in the National Post by Lawrence Solomon. Is that something you would more or less go along with? That's the only thing you can do if you're going to bring down the current price problems, bring them down to the floor. Uh, you've got to deal with the current contracts. It's not enough to do, as as Tim Hudak and, and uh, perhaps uh, Andrew Hor- Horvath are saying, you know, no more contracts. You have to deal with the contracts that already exist that are al- already crippling people uh, in terms of those uh, bills that they're already receiving. And that's why Freedom Party is saying you've got to uh, pull the plug on those uh, corrupt liberal contracts. Well, maybe we should explore the history of how we got into this mess in the first place. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Maybe it might be helpful in knowing that before they understand what might be the best option to pick on the political front this time. Sure. Well, uh, you'll recall that we in Ontario, uh, under the progressive conservatives and liberals, invested in nuclear heavily. Uh, 
that led, unfortunately, to tens of billions of dollars in debt because the governments of the time, liberal and conservative alike, didn't want the public to know just ex- exactly how expensive that nuclear electricity was. So they just put it on the government debt. Uh, in 1998, the government finally said, this is uh, enough's enough. We've got, to, we've got to do something with the debt. So they instituted this debt retirement charge that we're all now paying. Uh, you know, it was started, I think, around $20 billion that the charge uh, was meant to tackle. Uh, now the money's being used not just to tackle that debt, but being used to, you know, fund various expansion projects. So the debt's never really getting paid down. I think it's really there to pay for the retirement of ex-employees. <laughs> That's what they mean by debt retirement. Right. So, so <laughs> you, you, start with the, you start with the progressive conservative uh, debt retirement charge in 98. And then uh, they also instituted this idea that they would go to retail pricing. Uh, market pricing for retail electricity, which was a good move, except that the election of 2003 was quickly approaching. Ernie Eves the, was the premier, uh, premier at the time, and he said, uh-oh, uh, we might lose our seats, time to do something. And so he posed these anti-free market uh, price caps, 4.3 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, initially, the McGuinty uh, liberals said, oh, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. But within one week, the polling told them that they'd better make the same, take the same stand. So we ended up with these price caps, which by the time the election was over had cost uh, Ontario in less than a year, $700 million. So McGinty raised the price cap to try and minimize the effect of it, but he didn't really get rid of the price cap. The result was anybody who had been planning to build generation capacity in the province said, I'm not going to spend my money in Ontario. They're not going to allow me to make a profit. So they, they, they basically chilled the market. Everybody pulled out. Nobody wanted to build. So, so why wouldn't McGinty have then reversed it again? Why wouldn't he have gone back and said, well, okay, we're going to go back to market pricing? Was that not an option in his mind? Uh, I think you have to look at the ideology of the, the ministers in, involved over the last several years, including George Smitherman, who I ran against actually mm-hmm. in Toronto back in 99. Uh, this was a left-wing approach uh, to resolving the problem. They didn't dare want to talk about uh, you know, opening up the market to competition. So instead... They committed Ontarians to these contracts for uh, gas-powered electricity generators and also for wind and solar that paid several times what the market normally would have paid. So instead of the market paying, you know, six or eight cents a kilowatt hour, they'd be paid uh, 10 to 80 cents a kilowatt hour so that people would say, hey, we can make a killing. We can can skin uh, skin the Ontario consumer. And that's exactly what the Liberals wanted to do, make it a, a deal that seemed too good to be true. And as far as I'm concerned... That is a deal that's too good to be true and ought to be uh, yanked. The people involved in it knew from the get-go that they were skinning the Ontario public. You know, there's a concern that I have, Paul, um, about the contracts that are raising the uh, rates and the electricity, and, and that is that you may be not you may be able to prevent any new uh, contracts from from being signed. But is there a provision in the current contracts which would allow the government to get out of them? Because right now, there's billions spent on windmills and solar at exorbitant rates. We're paying people, I don't even know what it is anymore, 83 cents a kilowatt hour, and we're only <laughs> billing people 14 cents or something like that. But is there any way to go back and say, okay, we have to get out of the contracts that were done before? Are there provisions in there for us to do it legally as a province? Well, many of these contracts, of course, we don't get to see the terms, but that's kind of a side issue because the Court of Appeal of Ontario uh, made it clear just a few months ago in November in a case called Trillium versus Ontario that essentially says, and this is the Osler Law Firm in Toronto has basically summarized it this way, you, uh, the government is not bound by those contracts and need not pay any kind of penalty at all. Uh, in other words, it's a matter of public policy and provided that it's a core matter of public policy, the government is free to change course, uh, for example, to pull the plug on the green energy uh, scam that uh, the Liberals have imposed. That's what needs to happen and it will not involve a penalty. 
Well, what about when they moved the gas plants? There was contracts signed there. Why did they have to spend the uh, the uh, the billion dollars to move the gas plants? Well, there were, there's two parts to that. First of all, that court decision hadn't yet been rendered. The other thing was that uh, McGinty was acting in a panic a few days prior to the uh, polling day in, in 2011 when he made the decision about the Mississauga plant. And he basically told the, uh, the builders, don't worry, we'll make you whole. In fact, we'll make you better than whole. So it, they were quite happy. They didn't raise a fuss in the middle of an election because they knew they were going to not only uh, get their money back, but actually make a killing. You know, Lawrence Solomon and his... Uh in his article of, uh, when was this, April 4th, just last month in the National Post, reversing renewables, brought up some interesting options of how this can be done. It's not always just a matter of backing out of a contract. There are many creative ways of going out, going into backing out of these issues. Absolutely. But I thought it would be interesting just to see the backdrop of this whole thing called green energy and the whole wind windmill thing, you know, um, wind turbines. And he writes that in recent years, countries throughout Europe realizing that renewables delivered none of their environmental promises have been systematically cutting their losses by ditching their renewable commitments. Spain, unilaterally rewriting uh, renewable energy contracts to save its treasury. France, slashing by 20% the guaranteed rate offered solar producers. Belgium, producers saw their revenue slashed by as much as 79%. That's a big slash. And Italy and others, which clawed back through taxes the gross profits uh, profits in renewables uh, companies that we're taking in. And he says, no citizenry would benefit more from reversing the wind and solar gravy train than Ontario's. Its developers have received up to 20 times the market rate of power, leading to a tripling of power rates and a gutting of the province's industrial base and helping to turn Ontario into a have-not province. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the worst part is, you know, the reason why, for example, you, you would expect, given the scandal, you would expect, for example, the progressive conservatives to say, hey, just like Freedom Party, we're going to pull the plug. The reason they won't is because those wind and solar projects are set up in farm country where the voters have in the past voted PC. They don't want to aggravate those farmers. So at the same time as they're telling the, the consumers, oh, we've got your back, they're telling the, their uh, voters and supporters in, in farm country, don't worry, farmers who have the solar and wind pa- panels up, or the, sorry, the, the solar, tur- uh, solar panels and the wind turbines up, we've got your back, we're going to honor those contracts, you're still going to be able to skin the cat. That's mm-hmm. disgusting in my view. Well, I agree. So in, in, in addition to, you know, can, can we just cancel contracts? How do we back out? Lawrence Solomon seems to say, he says, uh, renewable developers take note. Governments are entirely within their rights in going back on a deal. In a democracy, when the deals are not only inspired by rank politics, but are also so odious as to outrage the voters, developers should expect nothing less. Yep. Do they go into it expecting these kinds of things? Because it's happened to them so many times before under Ernie Eves, I guess, right? Yeah, I think I think it's par for the course. If you're going to go in and try and make a quick buck, uh, and you know you know you're making several times above uh, market rates, you know you're doing something that's going to come back and bite you in the bum. Uh, so uh, you know, I think they know uh, it's get in, get out. Uh, that's basically the plan, and they hope for mm. uh, you know beyond hope that the liberals will stay in power so that they can uh, keep the. Uh, the money flowing for as long as possible. I don't think they're going to be able to keep it going much longer, though. Well, you know, I saw Solomon suggest various techniques that governments at all levels have used to weasel out of their green contracts, if you want to put it that way. They use penalties, they use taxes, they use uh, regulations, even victim compensation fees and fines for environmental destruction. Now, that one I, I thought was, you know, gave a very interesting example. 
He said, when Syncrude Canada's lack of foresight led to the death of 1,600 birds, it was fined $3 million, or $1,875 per bird. Wind turbines kill uh, birds in large numbers, according to a study in biological conservation, between 140,000 and 328,000 per year in the U.S., at 1875 a bird, the fine would be between 200 million and 600 million a year. It would be a billion every two years. Right. But again, if the companies can afford that fine at the rates that, that they're getting paid, they'll just carry on doing it until the birds are all gone and there's no birds left to find them for. Sure. Yeah, I think probably <laughs> the know, soundest approach that doesn't even involve, uh, you know, so much as uh, breaking contracts is simply the dispatch. In other words, choosing which uh, generators are going to be feeding the, uh, the grid at any given time. Uh, Pickering, uh, as many, many people know, will be shutting down entirely, Pickering nu- Nuclear, in 2018-2020. Um, and uh, at that point, there will be a need to replace that uh, generation um, capacity. In my view, the appropriate approach is not to replace those nuclear units with more nuclear units, but rather to allow the private sector to fill the void and charge market rates. That way, if the guys with the big, you know, overpriced electricity want to continue charging above market rates, they're not going to get picked to feed the grid, and they're not going to get paid to feed, not to feed power to the grid. In other words, if you want to compete, fine. If you want to stick with your contracted price, go right ahead, but we're not buying. Mm -hmm. Is it true that we're the last province in Canada that still goes with nuclear power? Yep, we're the only province uh, with, with uh, existing nukes. Why? Don't we have more lakes than every other province in the, in the country? And, and, and water sources and other ways of generating power? Well, we, we do have quite a bit of hydropower in, in the province, not enough necessarily to, to, to meet our demands. But um, what, we've, what we've got now is a system where the, they've closed all of the coal plants so as to appear uh, green and et cetera. The result of that uh, means a, an increased dependence on things that they have put in place that are working very badly, like mm. the, the wind and solar. And then they've put in gas plants to offset the times when the turbines aren't turning or when the sun's not shining. Uh, and, of course, the contracts with those gas uh, uh, generators are uh, at above market rates. So we're getting skinned. Interesting. Well, listen, we're at the quarter hour already. Let's take a break for a smile now, along with a taste of the kinds of planks that we might unexpectedly hear brought up by the progressive conservatives during this election campaign, like the one million minus hundred thousand jobs plan he got. But uh, we'll be back right after this. There are things most folks don't know about me. First and foremost, I love running. Okay? It's a blood sport. Two, I, I, I try to speak simply, and I, uh, I get right to the point. Three, I set goals. Really, really, sincerely, sky's the limit. Hard to accomplish goals. And four, no matter how hard I try, brother, no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to stop. Everyone's got a problem. Uh, people on the weekends, they all have problems. From the provincial campaign trail tonight, progressive conservative leader Tim Hudak is promising a grow-op and meth lab registry. Homes used to grow marijuana or cook toxic chemicals will go into the registry. 
Hudak wants buyers to know if their dream home could be concealing mold, dangerous chemicals, or bad wiring. He says the registry will give potential homeowners peace of mind. And while talking about grow-ops, Hudak faced a question about his own past with marijuana. Did he light up? as a kid growing up. So yes, I have. Uh, it's been some time, uh, I'll say, Randy. But that doesn't excuse what we're talking about uh, today. Right? We want to make sure that families who buy a home that was used as a grow-op or a meth lab know about that and can make remediation. Hudak adds that he does not support the decriminalization of marijuana. This is the second time the party leader has promised a grow-op registry. He made a similar pledge in Ottawa last month. That was from the last election, of course, and it's one of those many unexpected types of things that Hudak comes up with at the last minute to always run in an election. And, and this 100,000 jobs cut was a last-minute thing, too. It doesn't really sound like somebody who's on top of things. And, and what can we expect from this guy who's pulling these surprises on us at the last minute? Uh, Paul, you're an employment lawyer. Right. Um, 17 years. And when you heard this 100,000 job cut promise you know, added to the million dollar or million jobs over eight years promise. Um, what was your reaction? It started with laughter and then <laughs> greed because um, the, the thing about 100,000 jobs being cut, I was listening this morning to another radio program. A caller called in and said, uh, uh, you know, did you realize that the unions are saying there's 60,000 uh, positions in management that need to be cut that are wasteful? And immediately, as we always get to see with Mr. Hudak, he jumps on that and says, that's great. We've got to ki uh, kill those 60,000 jobs. We've got to cut the fat, trim the, you know, all that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Well, here's, here's the thing. You, you cut... 60,000 management jobs, I guarantee you there are 60,000 severance packages or as many as 60,000 wrongful dismissal lawsuits. That's what I do for a living. 60,000 people lining up at my office makes me pretty happy. <laughs> okay. Now, do the math, though. Okay. Well, wait a minute. You're in the wrong party, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, do the, but do the math. So you got 60,000 managers. If we assume very modestly, very modestly, that they're getting $50,000 severance packages on, on average, and Trust me, some of them will be getting ninety and one hundred and twenty thousand or more uh, severance packages. These are managers; they're not low-end workers. But let's just be very conservative, as we, as it were, <laughs> with our numbers. At fifty thousand dollars per severance package, he's just cost Ontarians three billion dollars. And if if we expand extend that to um, the more realistic number, which is a hundred thousand people that he's talking about, times a hundred thousand uh, dollar. Uh, severance package, we're talking $10 billion. So the notion that he's going to balance the budget by giving everybody severance packages is absolutely laughable. The only thing people will be happy about this is uh, the employment lawyers like myself, because well, they'll be getting large fees. I didn't hear him talking about severance packages. I heard him talking about everybody just moving over to the private sector somehow. Oh, yeah, there's lots of sleight of hand <laughs> and magic. This morning I heard, oh, I, did, I, did I say 100,000? What I meant was 100,000 over four years. So maybe it's not so bad. Oh, and by the way, uh, it wasn't really 100,000 because uh, some of that 200,000, he said, will be through retirement alone. Well, I'm thinking, well, 200,000 is double 100,000, so why do you need to cut the 100,000 in the first place? And on and on it goes. It's round mm. and round. You know, when I heard that $100,000 mark, what, my, the first 100,000 job mark. <laughs> yeah, job mark. The first thing that came to my mind was, why 100,000 jobs? That sounds like a really round number. Why not 75? Why not 27,906? To me, the number of jobs that a government has or an industry has is dictated by the purpose of that government. If you are providing a service, then it needs a specific number of people to provide that service. No more, no less. If you're going to cut the jobs, 
reduce the positions, then you have to, in the same breath, tell us exactly what you're no longer going to provide with those jobs. You just can't pull this number out of a hat and say, 100,000 jobs cut across the board. Why? Where's the evidence? Exactly right. And and that was what was also laughable this morning. Here he was in London telling Londoners how he's going to uh, cut 100,000 uh, positions, and he doesn't even yet know which positions he's cutting because he's willing to uh, take uh, take up Smokey Thomas's uh, assertion that 60,000 uh, management positions need to go. Oh, that's great. Let's do it. I mean, are you serious? You haven't given this a grain of thought yet? And actually, when uh, I saw this uh, article the other day in the Globe and Mail, they did an analysis that basically said uh, a very substantial portion of that money would have to come uh, come about, or the, you know, the, the, the number of cuts would have to be a, uh, largely aimed at teachers. Correct. I mean, okay, so what are you going to do? You, you, you've laid off 40, 50, 60,000 teachers. Who's going to teach the children? Uh, he's got no plan. It's not as though he's saying at the same time you can keep your money and put the, put the money in a different school in the private sector. He's not even well, accounting Well, there aren't even private sector schools that he's promoting to create the job opportunities that these people could move into. Right. And, and not only that, you know, when you cut teachers' jobs, those things are predicated on class sizes, which are contractual uh, arrangements with teachers' unions. Is he unilaterally now saying he's going to break the contract with the teachers' unions to, to lay off these teachers to have um, a higher student-teacher ratio? I'm sure he'll never answer that question, but uh, the whole thing is asinine, frankly. Well, you, know, you know, if 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 as he says, and I think this is accurate, uh, two hundred thousand people will retire over the next four years. I don't think it's necessary at all to talk about cutting a hundred thousand. The fact of the matter is, we've got a huge wave of baby boomers already to retire. The government's going to be uh, shrinking at a at a record rate. That just needs to let it. Uh, we just need to let that take its own course. We don't need need to cut people uh, out of their jobs and pay them huge severance packages at the cost to the to the taxpayer of billions or tens of billions of dollars. And and you know it doesn't even stop at this jobs pledge. There's a number of other things that he conveniently leaves out uh, of his uh, spending plan when he's in London. For example, um, uh, the Toronto Transit uh, Commission. Mm. He he has said he's on record and he's been pushing for this for years. He wants to expand subway uh, services in Toronto. Well, he never mentions that when he's in London. And the reason he doesn't is because, uh, at least according to Wynne, the cost of doing that, and she's she's proposing to do it, mind you. The big move, right? Well, that's $50 billion. Yeah. And uh, she was promising to put only $15 billion into it alone. He said, yeah, great idea, but we'll do it without raising taxes. Well, hmm. what does that mean? By borrowing? Uh, by cutting? How many times can you cut the same 100,000 jobs? And given that, in fact, you're costing the public more by cutting them by giving all these people severance packages. There's just no credibility. Take another one. He's committed to uh, replacing those nuclear reactors with new nuclear reactors. Well, a few years ago, the Ontario government priced them. Per uh, pair of nuclear reactors, the price is as much as $26 billion. Well, there's six reactors going out of commission in 2018. So the new ones have to be built fairly soon, within the next couple of years, they have to start building them. But at a, at a cost per pair of $26 billion, what he's committing us to is an added debt of $78 billion, either a debt or he'll put it on a debt retirement charge on our bills. So he can s- say all he likes about the bills are going up and it's all due to Wynn's uh, uh, or the McGinty's uh, uh, green energy plans, and certainly that's made things awful. But his plan is even worse because he's promising to indebt the government and or the consumer to the tune of around $78 billion for nuclear, which in the past and in the future uh, will prove to be uh, something that is put on the government credit card until it's uh, pretty much 
out of commission, at which point they'll add it to another debt retirement charge. But that would be job creation in his mind, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't it? Well, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, it, you, can't, you can't spend government money and call that job creation because it's, it's like a police well, I said service. in his mind. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that alone. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, I just have a weird question that came up when Robert asked, I just made an observation there about the 100000 being such a nice round figure. Is it possible that he only came up with that as a, uh, you know, poke them in the eye tactic against the unions who have already lobbied or have said that they're going to be, you know, working against Hudak, and the place to do that is through the teachers, right? Because the teachers' union is a big one. Is that all that is? Maybe just a big threat to the teachers? Yeah, yeah, I can get back at you. Uh, frankly, I think it is. I think it's nothing but um, a vindictive attitude. He feels hurt that in the past, unions have gotten together and run anti-PC commercials, anti-Hudak commercials, and all of his rhetoric over the last several years has been about how unions are awful, union people are awful, union people are fat cats, union people make too much money, we got to get rid of the union people, we're going to fight back, and etc. And I don't think he's thought this through at all. He's just said, I'm going to cut 100,000 jo- uh, 100, jobs. He knows most of them will be teachers, and uh, he knows that those people are unionized, and he figures that because teachers teachers make a lot of money and because teachers uh, give the unions lots of money through union dues, he can uh, cut down on political opposition. It's it's a political, uh, it's an electoral, if you mm-hmm. want to put it that way, plan. It's got nothing to do with balancing the budget and everything to do with trying to uh, take out unions so that he doesn't have to face any opposition. Yeah. Um, I just interrupted you before. You, you were going to get to something else before I asked that question, were you? Uh, further to your other point? Well, I, I just I think that, you there. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't look at a $100,000 or a 100,000 uh, job pledge and say, well, there, that's how we balance the budget. Y- you can't balance the budget. Right. It, it, cutting the jobs actually costs you money because of the severance packages. And then you've got all of these other items that he's he's got us loaded up for, uh, $78 billion in nuclear, uh, somewhere in the range of 15 to $50 billion in, in subways for Toronto. That we paid for, of course, by people living in, living in Cornwall and London and Windsor who will never ride the darn things. You know, when he mentions the 100,000, again, it's a very whimsical, random number that he just pulled out of a hat, uh, probably at the urging of his uh, cadre around him. But um, I I get the impression that he's like a Dr. Evil with his pinky up to his mouth saying, 100,000 jobs, and and people around him snickering, and he doesn't understand why we're all laughing at him. I wouldn't trust this economist to to give me a good shine on my shoes, frankly. I mean, he's in the wrong profession, because as you you know the old joke, uh, economists have predicted 13 out of the last five recessions. And and here he is talking. Just to him, it's numbers and statistics, and he doesn't see the impact. He doesn't see uh, the balancing of the equation. Cut here. What happens over here? Blank out. Not talking about that. I I think you're giving him too much credit. Uh, what I mean by that is, I think you're assuming that he cares. Uh, frankly, I don't think that the PC party can be trusted. I once had a, a lunch. Several parties uh, were all together for an electoral function, and. Uh, the discussion was between the Liberal representative and the PC representative, and the nature of the discussion was this. From, this is from the PC. I liked the good old days. It was just the Liberals and the PCs, and it was just about power. It wasn't about all this policy and everything else. It was just about <laughs> handing power back and forth, and that's exactly how they still think. If we fool ourselves into believing that he gives a darn about balancing the budget or how much the nu- nuclear is going to cost or anything else, we're doing ourselves a real disservice. We have to be wary of this. What's happening is that a few companies who pay one or two or $3,000 per dinner ticket to fund that party expect payback, and the kind of payback they expect is... I get the contract to build the nuclear. I get the contract to build the roads. I get the contract to build the subways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody else is getting the hose uh, and, and the business because what he's telling us is, is nothing but 
you know, isn't, won't, won't it be great? You'll have uh, continuous power. Well, no, what you're saying is that the, and he said this as well. He, he mm-hmm. said this as well. If you are a retail consumer of electricity, he wants to make you pay for the 70% of electricity generation that is consumed by manufacturers in the, in the commercial sector. Yeah, to attract them here. Right. right. So, so what he's saying is we have to engage in massive corporate welfare. And as he's saying that and not calling it corporate welfare, he's picking on $250 million here or $100 million there or $1 million uh, and this other place that's given out by the liberals. Meanwhile, he's promising billions and billions and billions in corporate welfare at the expense of the little guy. Very interesting, Paul. I guess it comes down to, trust me, I'm a politician, and that's what we're going to be talking about when we go into our next quarter following the bottom of the hour break here. And going into this break, I have to tell you, this is something that really had to be a shake-up for both Hudak and the whole PC gang when this scathing review of Tim Hudak by John Robson that he uh, got into just this past May 9th on Sun TV. We'll be listening into that now, and then we'll return on the other side. John Robson has some stern advice for PC leader Tim Hudak in Ontario. John. Daniel, in a cupboard at Sun News Network, I have an empty suit. Out there on the campaign trail, the Ontario Tories have Tim Hudak. And I have to ask, which of these exhibits more reassuring leadership qualities? I'm afraid it's the suit. It's showtime. The Ontario election, Tim Hudak and the Tories need to demonstrate to voters what kind of stuff they have. Unfortunately, they seem to be doing it. As my colleague Christina Blizzard just wrote, Tim Hudak needs to learn to think on his feet. But while this is true, it's simply not practical. A man does not suddenly at his age develop this capacity to reason articulately on the spur of the moment. You either have it or you don't. And he looks very much like he's in the don't category, which is bad for him, bad for voters who need an alternative to Kathleen Wynne and Andrea Horvath, and bad for the party that has stuck to him through thick and thin. Remember, they didn't get afflicted with him as leader. They didn't go out in the bush and get bitten by a tick and come back with Tim Hudak. They chose him as their leader over other candidates who made compelling cases for a different approach. Then there was a threatened leadership review. The party stuck with Hudak because they said he was the guy. Who can figure out why? There's already a poll out that shows that the Tories are in the lead, but Hudak is least trusted by voters to lead the province. See, he's dragging the party down. Why? Well, he can't think on his feet. He doesn't seem to have any principles. He comes across as snarky rather than principled. You know, people are portraying him as a blue Tory, another Mike Harris, forgetting, of course, that Mike Harris won elections. But who next says he's a purple Tory? You ask the man, are you a blue Tory or a red Tory? After all this time in public life, he doesn't even know that. And he can't give you an appropriate answer. When he tries to crack a joke, comics flee en masse. When he tries to articulate a principle, political economists flee en masse. When he tries to win an election, voters flee en masse. And if he loses again, the party's going to have to answer the question, not just what was wrong with him, but what was wrong with you, that you really, truly believed in him when everybody else was saying, who is this guy? Jim's a real thinking candidate. I've worked with him for the last four years and I've gotten to know the real guy. He's compassionate, he's highly intelligent, and he's focused on the really big issues that matter in this campaign. You take a campaign sign and pound it into a lot and then take it out a couple of weeks later. It only takes 
you know, a day or two for the grass roots, for the, for the grass to grow back over the, the little hole. But, I mean, it's really no different than a divot on a golf course. But so often you'll see, uh, you'll, you'll play a golf course and you'll see all these divots hanging around. I mean, a guy will take a divot and put it back without pressing it down, you know? <laughs> Do we have a divot policy? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, listening to that John Robson rant about Tim Hudak before the break there, he asked a very interesting question. He said, what's wrong with Hudak's supporters? I mean, why are they supporting this guy? And, and when he said, remember, they didn't get afflicted with him as a leader, right? They chose him as a leader over other candidates because he was the guy. And then he, then he asked, who can say why? And I know people keep asking this question. I've been, I've been saying this since 1984. It's because Tim Hudak is the perfect representative for those people and that kind of voter Absolutely. and that kind of party. Tim Hudak is the perfect rep for the PCs. He's the progressive, per, you know, he... He's the blue on the one side, progressive, red, conservative, blue. Right there, you got your purple. Right. right. Purple color right there. Incidentally, the it's color the of tie of... tends to wear even to the leaders' <laughs> debates. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Well, so, you know, red Tory or blue Tory, it's a sorry Tory story as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, but, but, you know, this whole trust issue, I, I, to me, that the million jobs promise it was a was a trust killer to me because when when I hear politicians say jobs 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 like I told Andy Utman the other day I said that's the most hollow and meaningless promise that a politician can make because it's so down the road unless he's hiring you himself I mean right. other than that where is he going with that why 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 this how do you how can you trust a guy that says that and yet people want to hear it they want to hear this. I don't know that they do except for no, no comic relief perhaps uh, anybody who believes that bit is. Uh, I don't think the average kind of person. Uh, I t think it would take an exceptional person to believe that uh, anybody, whether it's Tim Hudak or anybody else in government, can can create a million jobs. As you say, the only way you can create jobs, if you're the government, is by hiring people yourself. Um, what government can do is the opposite. Government can stop jobs from being created by setting up regulatory barriers, uh, high taxes, uh, wage laws, wage controls, price controls. All of the things that, of course, the progressive conservatives have imposed over the years. I mean, there's a laundry list. They nationalized the the uh, uh, the uh, energy system. It used to be a private system. Mm -hmm. The guy who built uh, Casa Loma. Yeah. yeah. That guy was left penniless on the street because the conservatives basically nationalized everything he had. Uh, you've got um, the income tax, the retail sales tax. The, I mean... To, to suggest that conservatives, progressive conservatives, have a history of being somehow right-wing is it's not in accord with the facts. They are actually, historically, to the left of the liberals, who almost never got a chance to govern, but when they did, made it even worse. And not only did they bring in the income tax and the sales tax, six out of the seven increases in the sales taxes have been by progressive conservative governments in this province. So you're right, they are the, the most uh, uh, wasteful party that has ever been in power in government. And for him, to actually use the word conservative in their name is quite the misnomer. Uh, they should just strictly be called progressive party yeah. and uh, not for any of the good ways that that word is used um, or the suck and blow party, mm -hmm. do one thing and the other at the same time. You know, the million jobs promise. Uh, again, it goes back to the 100,000 uh, job cut promise. It's a <laughs> whimsical figure. It's a random figure. It's a round number that somebody, th he's throwing out into the uh, ether so, and, and, and with no evidence to back it up. Absolutely zero evidence. Exactly what is he going to do to create 
not just create an environment of, but create a million jobs, which, by the way, I understand, is twice the number of the unemployed in Ontario. He's going to create a million jobs for half a million people. I understand that now, because half a million people are going to have to have two jobs to pay for his <laughs> ludicrous claims. And for all the programs he's got lined up, the nuclear... I mean, how are you going to pay your electricity bill when he's when he's spending $78 billion on new nuclear units? How are you going to ride the subway or ride your car? I mean, how is he going to pay for this subway expansion? The, the only way you ever see is gasoline tax uh, car, uh, and, and assorted fees and et cetera on drivers. In other words, make drivers pay for public transit in Toronto, no matter where those drivers uh, gas up, from Thunder Bay to Cornwall to London. They don't care. It's all going to go into Toronto uh, transit system. Hudak's one of those. You know, it's shocking. I think you've got it nailed when you say progressive, just in the exact same way that the Liberals are progressive. Both of them want to control the levers of government. That's the beginning and the end of what they want. They don't particularly care which policies get implemented, only that they're the ones that get to implement them. And so if it sounds good today to say a million jobs, and look at look at me, I'm going to create jobs, uh, jobs have been lost. Well, if he thinks people are gullible enough to do it, he'll he'll say it. I think that this one, though, largely backfired. And, and, you know, the joke that came out immediately as soon as he combined his one million jobs plan with the 100,000 people cut was, what, are you going to rename your plan the $900,000 or 900,000 jobs plan? Or, or you know, what is <laughs> you know, it? Isn't, isn't it funny how we're all having trouble saying those numbers without saying the word dollar beside them instead of, instead of jobs? Because when you get to those astronomical <laughs> numbers of millions, it, yeah. it, it loses all credibility. Right. The only thing that sounds credible at that, to- at that time is dollars, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Now, here's, here's where we have to go for the rest of the show. We've been talking about Hudak as an alternative, etc. Now we've got to talk about Freedom Party and what Freedom Party would do. And just before we go into our, our next break, where we, where we hear a bit about Freedom Party, both from Sun News and from the local London Free Press, political be here, a common concern you hear from whether the media is sort of positive towards us or negative towards us is that regardless of how they look at us, they think that we're stealing votes. Mm-hmm. from the PCs. Yeah. And that has always disturbed me. You know, I, I, do you know why that is? Uh, well, because there's a false assumption that um, people fall into these nice little boxes. I mean, the fact of the matter is a person can vote NDP in one election, vote PC in another, vote Freedom Party in another. The the notion that one only slides between PC and Liberal or between NDP and, and Liberal uh, is largely false. And so we, are we stealing votes? Well, we're, we're going to win votes. Uh, that means somebody else won't win them. But to say it would be just Tim Hudak would be to suggest that his tax and spend plan is anything at all like w- what we're providing, which it's mm. not. It's the exact opposite. You know, to that point, uh, who owns a vote? Because I, I, I keep hearing a PC vote, an NDP vote, a Liberal vote, and we're stealing a vote. Well, you know, a vote doesn't belong to anybody except who's holding that ballot and who's making the X. It's the voters' vote. And he can decide where to put it. And if you're not going to gain his trust, just like Hudak's not gaining their trust, and the other three are not gaining their trust because they're all neck and neck, more or less, that's because the voters don't trust any of them, then that voter has to make a decision. And uh, it, we should be calling it the voters' vote. We're trying to win the minds and hearts of people out there, not political parties. Yeah, you know, I'm walking the dog last night, and uh, it occurred to me that uh, we also commonly look at this as who won the election who lost the election, and we think it's a party, or we think it's a party leader. The reality is that the only people who win or lose are the people who did the voting. In other words, 
there's a number of us who want to vote for Freedom Party, a number of us who want to vote for Liberals or Conservatives or NDP. And those people who are part of that group that didn't get their guy in, they lost the election. Those tens of thousands of people living in that riding lost the election. The candidate, he was just the thing they were voting for, trying to buy, trying to get, trying to put in place. They failed to get that guy in place or that gal in place. They failed. And so you can't blame politicians for what's just generally the opinions of the general public. You have to say that on this particular day, the public uh, wanted uh, this kind of program. They wanted to rob Peter to pay Paul. The, the public didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. The, the, the public decided that they'd had enough of, of NDP taxing and spending and that they didn't trust Tim Hudak and they certainly didn't want another few years of, of win. And so the public decided they wanted a balanced budget. They wanted an end to these uh, skyrocketing uh, hydro prices. And so they wanted Freedom Party. But it's because of what they wanted. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as though Freedom Party wants something and please can we have your vote. It's you want something and Freedom Party is the one delivering it if you want it. Exactly. And, um, well, that's very interesting. You know, I have another take on this whole who, who owns the vote thing, and I don't want to get into it until after we hear what we are about to hear for the next oh, six minutes or so from Sun News and from LF Press uh, Online. And we'll be back in about seven minutes or so. Aaron Goodwin is the Freedom Party candidate for the riding of Thornhill, joins us now from our Toronto studios. Aaron, great to have you on the program. Thanks for coming all the way down from Thornhill. Um, let me ask you, you interested in politics, you take a look around, you could join the NDP, the Progressive Conservatives, the Liberals, but here you are with this upstart Freedom Gang. How come the Freedom Gang? Well, um, none of the other parties offer anything of value to me as an individual in Thornhill. Um, all the big parties are speaking the same thing, which is more deficit. Freedom Party is the only campaign and party that is going to be offering uh, getting rid of the deficit. Our 2013 opposition budget offers a clear way to get rid of this giant debt that's been hanging over our shoulders. You know, it's obviously, I mean, you take a look around, it's, you would be the first Freedom Party uh, uh, MPP if you were elected. Um, Andrew Brandon is running for the Freedom Party down in Niagara Falls. Maybe you both get in, who knows? Um, but it is a bit of a long shot uh, th- that you might get elected. So wh- what, do you, what, what do you say to people when they, they say, well, listen, I'm voting for you, Aaron. I'm throwing away my vote. You're never going to be the MPP. Well, I wouldn't say never. Um, thanks to great networks like Sun News and giving me mm-hmm. the chance to voice my opinion here today, it gets more of uh, the Freedom Party message out there. So I think that there's always a chance and even though with just one MP from the Freedom Party in Parliament, we would still make a difference and voice the opposition and tell them that what they're doing is wrong, that they cannot continue to spend our tax dollars this way. Uh, let me, I mean, I'm sure most, many people watching this program, I should say most, because of course we're, we're coast to coast to coast, but a lot of Ontarians have traveled through Toronto, and the odds are if you've traveled on Highway 7 east to west or even the 401, you've probably traveled through or near Thornhill. Mm-hmm. But let me ask you what it is you like about Thornhill. I understand you were born there, raised there. Uh, what's Thornhill got going for it that, say, Richmond Hill doesn't have going for it? Well, Thornhill is unique in its own. It's uh, neighboring Vaughan and Markham all have great things to offer. Um, Thornhill has got the largest Jewish um, population in its area and it's a very family-based place that I'm happy that my sister is growing her family there and my parents still live there. I have lots of friends from 
high school and growing up, and it means a, a lot to me to make a difference in my home community. I was going to ask you, so as you, as you start your political career, I guess that's what we call it, um, you're looking out to friends and family to, uh, to get them going. What have your folks and your sisters said when you heard, I'm running for the Freedom Party? What do they think about that? Uh, they're supportive of me. Not everyone uh, shares all of my political ideas, but I think that with time and persistence, we'll end up on top because the Freedom Party is the only one that lives in reality and believes that the tax dollars should be spent efficiently and we are the only fiscally responsible party out there. You will hear an argument from the woman we just had on a minute ago, uh, um, Gila Mardo, mm -hmm. who says, wait a minute, Tim Hudak and the Progressive Conservatives stand for fiscal responsibility. They'd like to balance the budget too. Um, and presumably you're going to have to answer to P Progressive Conservative supporters who don't want you to steal their votes. Uh, I understand they don't want to steal the, me to steal the votes, but um, if they want someone to come through on the, what they're saying, then the Freedom Party candidate is the only one that's going to do so. The big parties are all getting swayed from one way to another on who should spend what money where, and the Freedom Party is the only one that's actually been consistent through the years and delivering on their promises. Well, Erin Goodwin, good luck with this fight. Maybe we'll have you back in before it's all over. ErinGoodwin.ca if you want to learn more about the Freedom Party and Erin's plan to take Thornhill. Good luck. Go get them. Thanks. Thanks, David. Don't forget to vote February 13th for Freedom Party. All right. Hi, welcome back to The Political Beat at LFPress.com. And this is a special London West by-election edition and voters will go to the polls on August 1st, that's Thursday, and the clock is ticking down toward that vote. With me is summer reporter extraordinaire Brent Bowles. Happy to be here. Happy to have you, Brent. Thanks for filling in. And um, you've done a lot on the by-election, which again is uh, uh, being held in London West. The seat made vacant when Chris Bentley resigned a few months ago. That was the Liberal cabinet minister. Um, give us a sense, Brent, based on, do we have a poll, any numbers that give us a sense of how the race is going? We do. It's uh, it's essentially coming down to, to two candidates who are the front runners. Ali Chabar for the Conservatives is polling at 36%. Peggy Sattler is coming in at 31. Then there's a bit of a gap. Ken Cran for the Liberals is uh, well behind at 17%, and then the rest of the field makes up the rest the of the, yeah, the, the other guys. And that's a that's not our poll, right? Or whose poll is that? The that's a forum poll. Forum poll. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a forum poll. And so we got basically Tories in the lead. Uh, probably neck and neck given the margin of error with the NDP right. and Sattler and then Coran way behind. Um, to me it's very interesting that it's not a shoe-in for the Liberals or for the Tories and that brings me to the, the one of the fringe parties which is the Freedom Party. I think because it's so close between the Liberals and the New Democrats. I've spoken to a Tory operative, I'm sorry, between the Tories and the New Democrats. I've spoken to a Tory operative who said every vote that that the Freedom Party gets, and this is the Freedom Party, if you've never heard of them, who could blame you, right? It's Al Gretzky running, uh, uh, he's the candidate, that's Wayne Gretzky's uncle, but um, every vote that they get is a vote probably taken right out of Ali Jabbar's hip pocket. So let's just say they get like four or five percent. Does that, is that enough to make the difference between the New Democrats losing or winning this seat? So all of a sudden you have a fringe party that's actually kind of potentially playing a pretty key role in this two-horse race, which I think is a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. 
because, I mean, who saw that? But Who saw that, eh? Who saw that coming? Certainly not the free press. No, that's for sure. And, <laughs> of course, Al did get to that 5% that they were talking about. Right. And both of those audio bites we just heard were, of course, from the last set of by-elections. We've just gone through seven in Ontario, just in this last little period. And, of course, Freedom Party was in all of them. Now, I just wanted to pick up, obviously, um, those two fellows didn't like Freedom Party, and and a lot of people in town on the radio stations are asking why they don't hear about Freedom Party in the free press. But before we even get to that, I just wanted to carry on the the, the, the conversation about who owns a vote. And I want to speak to this argument on a moral basis, because that's what I think speaks to the heart of what a wasted vote is all about. not a wasted vote on Freedom Party. You know, it's a stolen vote for the PCs, if you look at it the other way. Votes do not belong to the liars and misrepresentatives who tell people what they think they want them to hear, and then they get their vote that way. And they yeah. don't even put out the effort to to follow through on that. And so you've got a party like the PCs, every bit as socialist as the liberals and NDP. To me, the vote belongs to the party that earned it honestly, without misrepresentation, without hidden intentions, without last-minute policy decisions on the fly. You know, to say that Freedom Party's votes, which are balanced budget, fiscal responsibility, no monopolies, freedom, capitalism, government as referees, these these votes don't belong to the PCs, you know? Am I off on, on a tangent here? You know, Bob, it's beautifully rep- presented. Um, if that, if such a thing worked, the fraud and, mm-hmm. and the deceit, why doesn't the Freedom Party just come out and say, we'll create 2 million jobs? We'll cut $200,000 public sector. Uh, right. We'll, we'll, we'll eliminate the teachers, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just destroy government and we'll, we'll, we'll make everybody fabulously wealthy. I mean, if all this lying and deceit, corruption that the PCs and the NDP and the liberals are getting on with works, then why don't we just come out and promise everybody the moon, uh, Paul? Well, and the other thing is that, okay, by that token, we can say that now that we have secured 5% in London West, those are our votes. And if uh, for some reason, <laughs> yeah. you know, we lose 1%, then then the Tories have stolen our votes. That's a bunch of nonsense. The, the votes don't belong to the parties. The votes belong to the people who vote. And if they change their mind, all the power to them. Uh, that isn't stealing. Uh, the, the, uh, the notion that somehow you own their votes, that's the theft in and of itself. That's a good point. Um, you took it one, pa- one point even past my own. And, of course, I think it goes deeper than just a trust in government. It cuts to the trust in those who govern and the people who are running for us. If they're willing to tell us things like that to get into power, what are they going to do when they're there? Right. right. So here we are in London now. We've got a big, uh, an amazing slate of candidates here in the city as far as Freedom Party goes, and here's the leader. Um, Salim Mansour, Al Gretzky, um, Claire Maloney, and yourself. Um, what's the strategy? Uh, is, is there a major strategy here? I know a number of people asking why you're running in London, uh, Fanshawe. Well, clearly, as we saw in the by-election in July, there's something happening on the ground. People are changing their minds about uh, who they should vote for. And clearly, uh, Freedom Party has become one of the mainstream options in this area. Uh, 5% is not something you get by accident. 5% is, is basically the leaders, uh, the people who spearhead uh, change, coming out and saying, I've had enough of the hoodacks, I've had enough of the winds, I've had enough of the horvaths, and I'm doing something that I think is actually going to cause some change. And as soon as someone makes that bold step, causes that 5% to happen, the rest of the people say, you know what? I guess it's not that, quote, wasted vote anymore. There's actually people voting for them in significant percentages. Now I can vote that way too. 
without feeling ashamed or like I'm doing something different than anyone else. Of course, you're in the privacy of a ballot box. And I would encourage anyone who's afraid of voting for Freedom Party for fear that they're, you know, uh, going to be uh, chided by their friends simply to say, well, then <laughs> I'm not telling you how I voted or I voted for your guy or whatever. It's nobody's business. It's not lying when you protect that uh, that privacy. But um you know, I, I think uh, there's really already a groundswell here. I've heard it on radio. I've heard it on multiple stations. People calling in and saying, well, I don't know who, who, who anyone else is voting for, but I'm voting for Freedom Party. And then call after call after call of people saying, yes, I'm voting for Freedom Party too. When we hear that kind of groundswell, and that's completely unprompted, it's not like we have the resources to, to feed people from around the province into these various radio stations. This is just grassroots people who have seen the options and seeing what the policies are of the other parties and said, no, I'm not buying that million jobs or that 100,000 cuts or that free subway or any of that. That all, I, I've been there. I've done that. I know it's a lie. I know I'm going to get taken. I know it's going to cost me in the end. I'm going to go with the Freedom Party. And because of that, we have these uh, four very closely knit uh, ridings. Um, they're all within the same radio distance. They're all within the same community. London is very much like an island in Ontario, but the people in London seem to be ready to make this spearhead move. And so we've put top grade um, uh, candidates in the area. Claire Maloney in Elgin, Middlesex, London was in fact a councillor um, in, in that riding in one of the municipalities. Yeah, uh, Salim Mansour got uh, in excess of 10,000 votes and came in second in the, uh, uh, as a Canadian Alliance uh, candidate and I think it was the 2000 election. Uh, as we say, uh, uh, Al Gretzky, he also participated uh, as a Conservative Party uh, candidate and uh, narrowly lost in uh, in London West when he ran for the Conservatives uh, with 20,000-plus 20, votes, and he got 5% of the vote uh, this last outing in the by-election for Freedom Party. And uh, I just think that that's, uh, that's telling us something. We, you know, we, ought to, we ought to be putting those top-grade people, people who, when elected, can represent the people of, of London well. You know, one of our organizers just this past April 28th gave us some alarming statistics and these are only YouTube statistics. If you are you aware of these? I think well, you might read be. them out. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it kind of tells you who's interested in politics and what they're watching. But on YouTube, and this is strictly YouTube, nothing else, leaders personal channels, Tim Hudak has thirty five subscribers and ten thousand two hundred and four views. Kathleen Wynne has fifty one subscribers and nineteen thousand nine hundred and twenty three views. Paul McKeever, 1,567 subscribers and 364,009 <laughs> views. Wow. It, yeah. you're, you're, you're out there on the moon, and these guys are down here <laughs> on Earth. Yeah, you know? I, I suppose and that's true. And, and it's just an amazing difference. And even in terms of the party channels, uh, Freedom Party is second right behind the Liberals and very close. 425 subscribers versus 406, with the PC fo- following at 374. And uh, figures at 600,000, 400,000 views kind of compared. Right. Um, Freedom Party's right up there when it comes to public interest. If, if that should translate into votes sometime, you can yeah. see that Ontario might actually have a chance to move in the right direction. Oh, yeah. And I think that we're already seeing that. I mean, that's largely generational. Of course, uh, uh, my dad, he's uh, 72 two right now, and, and he watches YouTube from time to time, but the heavier consumers are certainly people like my sons uh, or even my colleagues at, at the age of 48 uh, who are more regular users of YouTube. Uh, what I think has happened with respect to the PC numbers, I think the reason they're, they're relatively poor is because the PC um, constituency, the people who, you know, the dyed-in-the-wool blue people uh, are fewer and fewer in number. They're literally 
dying off. They are an older contingent that pre-exist Mike Harris, pre-exist uh, Miller, and and you know grew up with Frost and and Robarts and and uh, and so on Davis. And those people are still around. They're still the backbone of that party, but they're you know. The sear and yellow leaf of old age has hit them all. And I think if you go to these meetings, you'll see that, the all-candidates meetings, the people wearing the blue buttons, the, the PC buttons, generally speaking, are the old diehards that are fewer and fewer in number. And that's why we see uh, that he's not very popular in cities. He's not very popular wherever, you know, the 21st century has hit um, the mainstream, um, you know, 21st century technology, wherever, mm-hmm. wherever it's really popular. So, um, uh, you know, I still think the political the, the political system itself, w- which seems to present people with an either or situation. You know, I heard that he's doing better in Toronto now again. You know, well, that was a bit of a sneaky. Uh, re- I mean, it always makes for fun radio, but uh, the reality is that um, when they speak of the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, now also so- sometimes referred to as the Greater Toronto and and uh, Hamilton Area, you know. Um, you're really talking about ridings that aren't in downtown Toronto. There's about 24 of those, but rather are in the suburbs all around it, like Oshawa, where they've held the seat since 95 or earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are these are increases in popular vote, but in the same places where they already have seats. It, it's one of these things that, um, you know, they're a mile deep, but an inch wide. They've, they've got a lot of support in a few ridings, and that brings their popular vote up overall. But when you put the uh, the uh, the statistics on a riding by riding basis, you discover that they just don't have what it takes to uh, to form a government. Excellent, Paul. Thank you for joining us today. The hour has just flown by. Um, good luck with your London Fanshawe candidates debate tomorrow, and with all your provincial campaign and all the other interviews you still have to do. I think <laughs> today isn't that the case? That's in fact in a, about an hour and a half. I'll be on another one. Amazing. So. Trust me, someone should be here sometime around 11 a.m. next week, and we will return on CHRW. Join us in our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, stay right, act right, and think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I took one of those personality tests. Came back negative. (laughs) 